Welcome back to another episode of the Just Checking In podcast. This podcast, as always, is brought to you by Vents, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations with me, your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about all things mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we discuss it. I've checked in with one half of the Goals Don't Move podcast. That was with James Lamb, my best friend, in episode 50. So in this week's episode, I'm checking in with the other half of the Goals Don't Move podcast, the man, the myth, the legend that is Big Phil Addison. I met Phil through James, and since the two became friends in America at the University of South Carolina, that was where James was studying for his year abroad. Phil has visited the UK several times where we spent many a good time together and has ingratiated himself superbly into English culture, I might say. In this episode, we discuss how the podcast has strengthened the relationship between him and his co-host James and improved his presentation skills in the workplace. We also discuss Phil's experience of living with ADHD from an early age. On the spectrum of ADHD, Phil says his ADHD wasn't as severe as other people who live with a neurological condition, but he says the ADHD has never held him back in life, which is a really good positive, I think. We also talk about Phil's weight loss journey and his desire to become a healthier and better version of himself. We discuss how his mate's hazing or teasing of him when he was tempted to stray from the path actually helped him achieve his goals and why he was grateful for that. Hazing can be used in a safe environment and it's also an essential part of the male social dynamic where appropriate. We also discuss how that weight loss journey has improved his self-esteem and obviously improved his physical health, mobility and performance in sports. As a trigger warning, Phil will discuss the different weights he was at various stages with his life chronologically, so if you do live with an eating disorder, that discussion might be slightly triggering for you, so please turn off or not listen to this one if that is the case for you. So this is how my check-in with the wonderful, the weird and wacky and amazing Phil Addison went. man the myth the legend phil addison welcome to the just checking in pod mate let's go so happy to be here freddie so happy man i've been so gassed for this bro i mean it's taken us a long time to get here but we're here long time yeah this has been a long time coming i'm very happy to be on we've been discussing this probably since almost this time last year i reckon i think yeah. yeah yeah like christmas time last year so very happy to finally be here on the pod and uh, looking forward to it. this. It's going to be a great one. I definitely think so, mate. I'm blessed. I know it's going to be a roller coaster one. I think it's going to be a lot of laughs as well. So, yes, sir. without further ado, shall we crack on and get it done? Let's get after it. I've chatted to James already about Goals Don't Move. So listeners, if you are listening to this pod and you want a more in-depth discussion about it, feel free to go all the way back to Just Checking In Pod episode 50. So for you, Phil, we're going to talk a little bit about if we can from your perspective, because I understand you drove the creation of it and you finally got James to actually sign up to it, even though he's a a lazy sod. So tell Mm. me why you felt inspired to start it with him, your relationship with James and how the pod helps your mental health. So basically, you know, it was locked down. I believe it was July of 2020. Not much going on. We knew the Premier League was going to restart sometime soon. Wasn't really sure what was going to come of it. We said, you know, we should do something, start a podcast, have fun. You know, we both enjoy talking about the Premier League. We want to watch it more. This will force us to watch the games, which it's done to an extent. You know, I still not watching every single game every weekend. It's hard. It's a full-time job. It's it's so hard, especially when, you know, you've got other sports here as well, like college football, NFL on Sundays, you know, bleeds into it a little bit. And then doing this podcast now. But there's never enough time. It always comes on early. But getting back to this, I'm already getting off track, and I'm sure I'll do that a ton this podcast. So I met James back at University of South Carolina in 2015. I was a freshman and he came over and did his study abroad here. And, you know, we just started watching footy matches together, watching soccer. You know, he's a big Arsenal fan. I'm a Man United guy. He lived close by. We had friends in the same building. 
So we'd get together, watch Champions League, you know, had a nice TV in the room. So everyone would come up and, and watch Champions League up at uh, my apartment. And my buddy Evan Barnett lived there with me. So that's how we met originally. And then getting into the podcast, we want to do something, don't want to waste all this time. Premier League's coming back. Like, let's chat about it. So it was a struggle initially. You know, we kind of talked about it. And then eventually I just said, you know, if we're going to do this, we got to do it right. We got to get mics. And he was like, oh, yeah, like that's that's a big commitment. Like I was like, yeah, it'll, it'll mean it's You're real a doer, if we Phil. get the He's, mic. James is not a doer. <laughs> yeah, so James is not, not a doer. Love James to death, not the doer. So I knew as soon as I bought the mic and sent him a screenshot or something, you know, I'd have to – he'd for, it'd force his hand. Yeah. So what I did is I, I sent my mom because she's got Amazon Prime. I sent her a uh, link to the mic. She said, boom, bought it. I sent the confirmation over to James. I was like, it's real now. You need a mic. And then the next day, James bought a mic and uh, we recorded our first podcast not too long after that. That's how we got into it. And then, you know, it's definitely helped having something to talk about during the pandemic, just constantly hanging out, chatting with James. Every Tuesday night, we do it Tuesday, Wednesdays. It's just so much fun and really brightens up the mood. It gets you through the week. So really enjoy that. And yeah, I think we're at episode 54 is getting recorded this week, so not too bad. It's no uh, no bad. just checking in yet, but <laughs> we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. So yeah, I love it. It's been it's been great. Not too bad at all, mate. Has your relationship with James got stronger because of the podcast, or has it gone in a different route? I'd say, yeah, it's gotten stronger. So, you know, before the podcast, you know, assuming I wasn't over there hanging out with y'all, James and I would check in probably like once a month, every other month, something like that. You know, we'd FaceTime for like an hour or so. And sometimes you'd be there. I'd see you. And sometimes, you know, Hensman would be there. Dan be there. Vardy, any one of the guys would be on FaceTime too. So just catch up with them for a little bit. But, you know, we don't really do those chats anymore which is fine, you know, because we're talking every week for almost two hours. Before we do the podcast, we're probably sitting there chatting for about 30 minutes about just life, what's going on. You know, that's just as fun as the podcast is to me. It's just catching up with James and I do it every single week now. So I'd say the relationship's changed, but in a good way, it's gotten stronger for sure. Just constantly like every week, like, you know, we're talking about things that we wouldn't talk about on the hour long FaceTimes that we had before because there's just more to keep up with. Like I know more that's going on. Like obviously when you're talking to someone that much every single week, you talk about things that maybe you wouldn't talk about on an hour long FaceTime when you're just trying to get the big things. And we don't just talk about the highs and what's the good stuff that's gone on. We talk about the lows too, like just chatting before. And you know, that's how it was when we were in person together, like just hanging out together all the time when I was living over there with him and his family. It's been really good to do that. And I think that's definitely strengthened the relationship for sure. Our friendship's gotten a lot stronger, you know, than, than just the monthly catch-ups. You said that the podcast has helped you with your work and specifically presentations you've done at work. So before the pod, you were quite honest with me and you said your presenting was good and the pod certainly reinforced that, but your content was lacking in some ways. Has the podcast made you correct that balance and made you maybe put more time into preparation than before? Definitely. So preparation, in my opinion, is key for any sort of presentation. The more you prepare, the better you know the material, the better you're going to present it, you know, just running it through your head, thinking of different ways to think about things, you know, different lines you're going to say, anything along those lines. The more you know the material always helps. So at work, one of my biggest presentations I did has been over a year now, but all it was was reinforcing, reinforcing, reinforcing what I was going to say. And I brought that up with the Goals Don't Move podcast. That's something I do now. Like I think about during the weekend, if I'm watching a game, anything like that, you know, write down a note in my phone, something to talk about. And then before the actual podcast, I've got, you know, I'm down here in, in my parents' basement right now where I've been recording the podcast recently and I've just got these goals, don't move sheets, just content James and I come together and discuss before the game, all just written down on sheets of paper down here. And we briefly go through it before that. You know, it's not like I'm giving a presentation every week with the goals, don't move podcast. I mean, I am, but I'm not going through and writing out paragraphs on paragraphs like I do if I'm giving a work presentation or something that takes months to put together, but I'm still putting in time and, you know, it adds up and I, I've gotten better at it because of this, you know, the content's gotten better. Anytime you take the time to prepare and really thoughtfully think something out, even if it's just 30 minutes, it's going to really improve the content. Then if I just go through and there's episodes of the goals, don't move podcast where it's very clear that I have not prepared. It's very obvious. <laughs> and I'm just sitting there browsing through different tabs on my computer just looking around like, oh, well, where's the Premier League table? Or let's look at these matches. And it's, you know, I take the pauses and I look at the games trying to see who's scored. I can't remember things. 
and it doesn't go as well. But when I sit down and actually write out stuff before the podcast, like I said, even if it just takes a few minutes to do that, just makes it so much better and it shows. So preparation's key, in my opinion, whether it's for a short podcast or it's for, you know, months of preparing for a work presentation. And the goals don't move has definitely improved my presentation skills, which I think were good before personally have a couple people tell me they were decent as well but personally i thought they were pretty good and i think it's only gotten better and you know sitting in front of a, a microphone for a couple hours a week you're gonna get better over time what has the podcast taught you about yourself phil oh that's a good question what has the podcast taught me about myself that's deep fred that's deep <laughs> why well, i'm doing this pod mate <laughs> yeah one of the first things the podcast kind of taught me about myself was just to be comfortable. If you're presenting and you're throwing it out to your friends and family and I guess the world, you know, anyone can go listen to the podcast. You've got to be comfortable in your own skin. I don't know if I wasn't super comfortable in my own skin before, but you have to be confident, take everything in stride. Like I'm out here presenting. This is me. This is this is what I do. You have to be comfortable and and enjoy it. And I think that's one of the things in the in the early episodes. You know, I wasn't really sure of myself. I was like, I don't really know. Do I really know what I'm doing? But no at the one end of the really day, does, though, mate. To be honest, I no, didn't know what no, I was no, doing. no. I had no clue. And you know, I'm still learning every single day. Every time I do a podcast, still still learning different things. You know, switching over to new programs, stuff like that. But being confident. You know, in the first episodes of the Goals Don't Move podcast, it, it, it wasn't there and it showed. But over time, I've grown into it. I feel better about it. And now, you know, we don't even do any editing. We just go right off the rip of the Goals Don't Move podcast because we're just so comfortable talking to each other now, James and I. And I feel really comfortable in my own skin and I don't have any problems presenting anymore. And that's taught me to be comfortable with myself. It's key. Other things, I don't know. That's, that's a very deep question off the top of my head. Was not expecting that one. It might be in the notes, but didn't see it. <laughs> We've spoken about Phil, the podcaster and great pronouncer of English Premier League players. I, I want to talk about your own journey now, Phil. So tell me yes. about your early life in Atlanta, childhood, teenage years. And looking back, do you think you had any early mental health experiences? Who's the Phil we meet here? Interesting. Yeah. So growing up, I grew up just outside of Atlanta, about half an hour north of a town called Marietta. Lived here pretty much my whole life. Other than you know, moving over to, to Columbia, South Carolina for school, for college, university, and then, you know, living in London for a couple months. But, you know, that's kind of a blip on the radar now. Yeah, early life was good, you know, can't really complain. I've got three younger siblings, so constantly hanging out with them and friends. And the memories looking back, it's just always having people around, always having fun times. You know, my parents love having the family around on Sundays. So we've always got people coming over, coming in and out of the house. And uh, yeah, I'd say it was a pretty good childhood. Looking back at it, I still feel like a kid these days. Like, I just feel like I started driving the other day. Still feel 16 at heart. <laughs> but yeah, ev everything was as, as good as it could be childhood-wise. No real complaints here. Looking back on it, any, any mental health issues or did I really realize anything about mental health? No, not at the time. You know, looking back potentially, like... Like we'll get into later. I, I have ADHD and I had the medicine as a kid. And I do remember a couple things about that. But now I wasn't really self-aware about anything like that. You know, it wasn't really talked about. Like, I feel like it's, it's way more talked about now than it was then. And maybe if we were in the same environment now and I was growing up in this environment, then I would have realized something. But now I had no clue at the time. It wasn't something I was really thinking about. But now looking back, it's definitely affected me. And, you know, there's things I look back on and I'm like, wow, that's why I did that. Or my mental health affected me this way. So definitely uh, interesting in that regard. Mm, let's talk about that ADHD quickly then, because you mentioned it quite casually to me when we spoke off air, Phil, and I've never known this about you, to be honest. And it's something that, you know, maybe I saw stereotypically exhibited in men and it's not something mm. you, you stereotypically exhibit. So you were also keen to say that it's never held you back from achieving what you've achieved. And it's not on the, shall we say, high end of the spectrum when it comes to ADHD. Yeah. But can you just tell the listeners who don't know what it is, what it is, and then how maybe the medication that you mentioned affected you were in, when you were in, in school and outside of school? Yeah, definitely. So ADHD is attention deficit hyperactivity? Hyperactive, disorder? hyperactive. Hyperactive, hyperactive disorder. So going back, I got put on the medicine probably when I was like seven or eight. I don't know if that's early for the medicine or, or late for the medicine. I just remember 
being diagnosed and my mom would always take me, you know, we'd go check in with whoever was prescribing the medication, go talk with her, chat with this nice lady and go to the office. And I didn't think much of it. I thought it was something everyone was probably doing at the time. I didn't realize that, you know, it was just me, but yeah, the medicine definitely helped. You know, when I was early in school, even like elementary school, my grades were not fantastic, but uh, the medicine helped me sit down, focus. I wouldn't say it's held me back in any way, but when I was younger, taking that medicine, I wouldn't eat. That's one of the side effects is, is you lose your appetite. So I remember just going to school and we do this thing called, uh, I think it was like fun lunch. You'd pay for fun food or whatever. And they'd bring in meals like Monday through Thursday. And it was like, not great food. It was like Arby's or some fast food chain. Like you get McDonald's so burgers American. brought in, stuff like that. <laughs> so American. And I would sit there or even when my mom would pack me lunches, I'd bring it back home and hardly touch the thing. She's like, why aren't you eating your food? I just wasn't hungry. One of the side effects of the medications is you don't eat. So that was definitely interesting. And then I'd get home and the medication would wear off and I would just pig out on everything. And, you know, that continued through probably early high school. And then I got off the medication and that was a big change for me as well. That's when I, I gained a ton of weight actually from that, getting off the medication because I just ate everything in front of me. You know, I wasn't used to it. During lunch, I would just sit down, I'd go to the hot bar and get a ton of food. And then I'd go back up for another plate and I'd be like, you know, starving but yeah let's um, go literally (laughs) yeah absolutely absolutely i would just get a ton of food and i'd be like i'm still hungry you know i'd eat all through lunch get back have a snack and then i was doing football practice at the time and if i wasn't i'd go work out for a little bit and i'd get home and eat more so that was definitely a tougher adjustment i would think going from never really eating and i was a thin little guy and then uh, just kind of blew up after I got off the medication. But yeah, the, med- the medication definitely helped. I wouldn't say it's helped me back in any way. It's definitely helped my grades for sure. Sitting down and actually being able to focus during school was good as it should be for, for most people. But you could tell like there's days when I forgot my medication and I would just be off the walls and they used to give out like you'd have to write your name down. And I think it was like the blue book or like the yellow book. And maybe I'd get in trouble once a week talking I remember I used to bring Legos into my little classroom and I'd play with them inside my desk and I'd get in trouble for that maybe. But when I was off the medication, that's when I maybe have to write my name down two or three times a day in there. Just like the things that I would do, you know, just chatting during class, anything, you know, I was on the medication and I was focused and I was good. But every time I wasn't on the medication, I wouldn't take it on the weekends either. And, you know, I'd just be super out of control. But uh, getting off the medication was definitely a good thing for me. I think I got off it at the right time. Yeah, is how I'll say. say. And I had I had to learn when I got off the medication how to actually sit down and focus how to actually do it because I can't just depend on the medication forever. I didn't want to depend on the medication forever. So I had to learn how to study how to focus how to not be super hyperactive all day long and just sit down and and get stuff done without the help of the medicine. Yeah, it's a lot harder to do when you're a very young child because, you know, young children, they don't have no self-awareness about that anyway. So I think it sounded like it was really good because you came off at the right time and the medication was really helping you to focus and not be deemed as like a troublemaker, which a lot of kids with ADHD kind of get labeled as when they're that age. But then when you got to high school, you had to learn to focus yourself or even learn how to kind of channel the ADHD into like maybe like hyper focusing and stuff like that was that something that you learned too I've never really thought about it that way but the first year coming off it was an adjustment period I I think my grades suffered and then I kind of learned how to do it you know you got to sit down and actually get your schoolwork done and you can't just sit there and I got an iPhone at the time and I would just sit down there and I'd play on that I still do that to this day and you know avoid work and stuff like that but it was much better for me learning how to adjust and live life off the medication and you know i channel that energy into other things now like i you know i go work out during the day which is great when i do have a lot of energy i think i've got to get it out somehow let's talk about that weight loss journey in full now and in depth so obviously you talked about gaining a lot of weight when you came off the medication and in your sophomore year i believe you gained about 30 to 40 pounds that was in high school sorry i should say sophomore year of high school sophomore year of, of college for americans and at the time you were playing in your school american football team and you're playing as a cornerback So for the UK listeners, that would be equivalent of maybe a fullback in rugby. So one of the quick and mobile players. quick guys. Yeah, I wasn't quick though. I wasn't quick. quick. I just thought I was. I thought I was. All right. Yeah. So because of that weight gain, you were then moved into the offensive line, which is like a forward pack in rugby for the UK listeners. So kind of a lot of big men, a Mm. lot of strength. Players have to sort of use their 
grunt, I would say. That's probably the best way yeah. of putting it. A lot it of was... grunt involved. Can you talk about how that transition happened? And did it affect your self-esteem in any way, being moved or not? I don't think at the time it did. When they first came to me and said, hey, you're not going to get any playing time at cornerback. Because I was not good. I was not quick. You know, I'd gained a little weight, wasn't great at the position. And I remember my high school football coach, the offensive line coach, Coach Palmer, wonderful guy, loved the death, still chat to him occasionally to this day, came up to me during summer practice. I think it was sophomore year, like one of the summer workouts and said, he's very, very honest with me. He's like, you're not going to play a cornerback. Do you want to come play offensive line? Like we can get you in the team at offensive line. Like you'll gain some weight. You'll bulk up, but we're, we're going to get you to play. He's like, he's just brutally honest. And at first I was pretty pissed. I was like, no, I can, I can be a cornerback. Like I've got the skills. Like I'll get there eventually, blah, blah, blah. But he was, he was right. And moving to offensive line was probably the best thing that happened to me in high school in terms of, you know, sports and athletics. I mean, the weight gain wasn't great, but it was, it was needed to play the position and it ended up working out really well. Got to play a ton my sophomore year gained a good bit of weight. I was still not massive sophomore year, but I think I played in like four games, started four games with uh, some, some other people coming out due to injuries, stuff like that. And then I guess it really turned the corner when I tore my meniscus sophomore year. That's what kind of changed everything, you know, was out, couldn't really move, walk around for a couple of months. That combined with the fact that I was no longer on the ADHD medicine was just eating all the time. And after that initial weight gain, I ballooned up to maybe 240, 250 pounds in that off season, which helped with the offensive line. You know, I was very good, started every game the next year and then senior year did the same. But I don't think I really realized, you know, I didn't think about it as a bad thing, like gaining all this weight until probably the end, towards the end of senior football season. I was like, man, I'm, I'm looking pretty big. I should probably lose a couple pounds. So um, that was a light bulb and that's, then. There was kind of a light bulb moment in there when it was like, huh, I keep going up in pants sizes, like wearing, wearing <laughs> this pants sizes might not be great. Always having to buy new clothes and everything. So that's kind of when the switch hit and I was like, mm, you know, I'll keep this weight on until football's over and then I'll try and lose this weight. You also got into wrestling as a part of this journey to help combat yes. uh, weight loss or combat the weight gain, I should say. How did doing a different sport help your cognitive development? give you a new challenge to work on and improve, obviously, your physical and mental health? Wrestling was great. So wrestling started after the end of senior high school football. So after football ended, we ended up winning the state championship that year. I think we played all the way up until late November, early December, which was great. Went undefeated, got a cool state ring out of it, you know, some swag, some like, Let's uh, go. That said like <laughs> state champs, a t-shirt. It was, it was awesome. I was living the life on the highest high. And then, like I said, you know, I knew I needed to lose some weight. So I transitioned over to wrestling and I uh, was very bad, horrible at wrestling, actually. I wasn't in it to wrestle. I was more in it for the practice and I knew I was going to lose weight if I was doing it. But first of all, being listed in the heavyweight category is never fun. If you're not you know, naturally a heavyweight, I would say, yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're not naturally a heavyweight. So I think heavyweight was like 225 pounds and up. I have no idea what that is in kilos or stone or whatever conversion it is, but it's, it was heavy. And I think I was wrestling at like 240 and I dropped down to mm, maybe like 225 during the season, something like that, you know, right on the cusp of it. But I was wrestling these guys that were like 300 pounds, just oh. these massive dudes that were just, when I got called up to wrestle, they were just throwing me around. That's sumo. Just, <laughs> it was, it, yeah, it was sumo size. And I was there like, I should even be in this weight class. I don't want to weigh this much. And I was just getting smacked around. I ended up only winning one match my senior year, which was fine. Again, like I said, I didn't really care about the wrestling and, you know, the competitive nature of it. I was more just in it for the weight loss and the practices and, you know, running around with full sweatsuits on these early morning workouts we were doing and stuff like that. That's what I really cared about. But it was a little demoralizing going out there and just getting beat down. You know, we drive two hours to go to a wrestling like tournament and then I would get there, do one match and get pinned in like 50 seconds. Wasn't great. Did it help my cognitive development thinking about that? Hmm. Like it was good to learn a new sport the rules of it and try and get down all these moves and remember it. But I wouldn't say it had that big of an impact on me. You know, I couldn't do one of the wrestling moves, maybe one of them, like a foot flip. I don't, I don't even know what it's called now, 
could maybe do remember one, but that's about it. You know, I wouldn't say the actual wrestling had an impact on me. It was more just starting to get in the habit of working out outside of football and being healthy around the clock. Cause you know, when I was doing football senior year, I was after practice, we'd get back and they'd give us two PB and J sandwiches and like two whole milks or like whole chocolate milks. So every calorie I burned in practice was being added back on and then some, and it, it wasn't really healthy, but I understood cause I needed to keep the weight on and wrestling kind of helped me, like I said, transition into a healthier lifestyle. Cause I wasn't trying to keep weight on or gain weight at this point. I was trying to lose weight. You know, I had the coaches there that were helping me not only with practice, but I would ask like, you know, how much do I need to be eating? Like if I'm trying to lose weight and, you know, they didn't want me to lose a ton of weight, but they were like, you need to do this. You need to keep your protein up. You need to be working out, lifting weights. So we would do that, get those early morning weightlifting sessions in. And then, you know, wrestling practice after school was good. I'd say that kickstarted my health development, actually kind of caring about what I eat and working out. And, you know, that would fluctuate over the next couple of years along with my weight, of course. But it was really good. That was definitely the turning point. So as little as I really did care about the sport, I cared about my one win. And I cared about how that kickstarted everything else. You know, that was kind of the first domino effect, knowing I wanted to lose weight and then wrestling being able to help me lose the first couple pounds. But like I said, it fluctuates from there. I've got a long story to tell about ups and downs of weight gain and weight loss. And, you know, I think I'm at a good spot now. A lot of L's in there, but one massive W. So let's take, let's use that from that whole section of wrestling. Mate. One massive dub. Yeah. When you started this journey, your friends used to used some, shall we say, tough love on you throughout. Yeah. So initially oh, yeah. they were they were pretty brutally honest with you about agreeing with your desire to lose weight when you told them. The quote mm -hmm. you said to me that they said back to you was, yeah, you're a little fat. And if we see you fucking up, we're going to call you out. And they did. As time went on, whenever you got tempted to deviate from that, they would follow through, like you said. So... You said it never came from a place of hate, but how did they no. help you and why was it important? Tough love for me was one of the most important things I've got from my friends. And bear in mind, these are still my friends to this day. They've been some of my greatest friends. But being brutally honest, I said, I'm trying to lose weight. And they said, okay, if you're going to lose weight, we're going to help you. And we want you to lose the weight. We want you to achieve your goals. But tough love was the way they did it. And I, I kind of asked for it in a way, you know, maybe not directly being like, occasionally I'd be like, you know, don't let me eat this. Like we'd go out to get food and I'd get grilled chicken, blah, 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 tossed in like, we go to this place called Otter's Chicken. Delicious. If anyone's ever in Atlanta, you got to try it. But I'd get this grilled chicken tossed in sweet heat at Otter's and then they'd give you fries on the side. I'd eat the grilled chicken first, get all that done. And they'd be like, you don't need those fries. And I'd sit there and I'd eat a couple and they'd be like, it's not going to help you with your goals. And I'd be like, ah, you're not wrong. And you know, yeah, there were times when they called me fat ass and stuff like that, but it was good for me. I mean, I wouldn't have done what I did without them. And, you know, they kind of helped before going off to college. Like, you know, we'd always go out, eat, hang out. And yeah, they were brutally honest and, and it was good. I needed that. I needed someone to keep me in check and say, you don't need to eat that. You shouldn't be eating that. It's not going to help you get where you want to be. And they constantly did that. And did it suck when they were like telling me not to eat stuff and kind of being an asshole about it? It wasn't great, but I asked for it at the end of the day. And, you know, I still need someone to keep me in check to this day. I, I use a personal training, like online system. You know, I get a message if I miss a workout, like, hey, you feeling okay? Like, why'd you miss the workout yesterday? Stuff like that. I, I need people around me to keep me in check. And the way they did it was really good for me. I need that tough kind of love to keep me going, keep me motivated. And the words didn't really hurt, but it was like, okay, like, I get it. You want me to be healthy. I want to be healthy. Like, they want to see me achieve these goals. They want to see me be a healthier person, the best version of myself I can be. And the way they went about it, using the tough love was good for me. I don't know if it works for everybody, but it was definitely really productive for me. And I mean, it, it helped me lose the weight. That social construct or social behavior, is what author Warren Farrell calls hazing, or basically just taking the piss, is unique yeah. to most stereotypical boy group dynamics, I would say. And it's actually probably mm. a main point of difference between female social groups. Like I said, Warren Farrell is an author who talks about this a lot in this, in this book called The Boy Crisis, which I found amazing. And he said that in a healthy environment, hazing is used to build trust, i.e. if you rip into someone and you show that they can take it and self-deprecate, own it, give it back, a bond is formed. If that person reacts with aggression or defensiveness, 
then that trust is broken and the mm. person who is doing the piss taking doesn't always feel that they can be truly themselves or maybe they're walking on eggshells or something along those lines in a boy social dynamic. Did you see that dynamic play out when it came to your weight loss? And do you think that's important for boys? I'd say to an extent I did. I have other friends that are trying to lose weight or have been, had tried to lose weight in the past and have lost weight. And I know who I can give tough love to. Exactly. And yeah. who I can't. Yeah. I know guys that I can push a little harder. I know which buttons to push. And I know I can say things like, oh, you know, you're looking a little chubby. Like, have you been hitting your workouts like the last couple of weeks? Just again, taking the piss. Like, and I know they can take it. And there's guys that I know that I would never say that to mm. because they would not take it well. Exactly. So I think it's good depending on who you're talking to. And that definitely comes into play a lot, but working out your fields, I would say, yeah, you you got to know your audience. You have to know your audience and who you're speaking to. And just being aware of that has been good for me. And, you know, my buddies knew, knew their audience. They knew what they needed to use, which buttons they needed to push on me. And it worked. Mm. And at the end of the day, it's never coming from a place of malice. Even when I do it to my friends, it's because I want to see them improve. And they want to see me improve. And that's all that matters. You just got to push the right buttons. Again, like there's some people, if, if I said, hey, come on, fat ass, hop on like the cardio machine, would not take it well. If someone does that to me, I'm like, yeah, I probably need an extra 30 minutes on, on the bike or on the <laughs> treadmill after this. I am looking a little fat today. When you were in junior year, mate, going back a little bit, if we can, you said you were still mm. unhappy with the weight and you began to experience some body image issues as well. What were they and how did they affect your mental health at the time? Junior year, I'd say going back, that's kind of senior year, junior year is kind of when I realized I was gaining weight. I was wearing like the pleated pants to school because none of the normal pants would fit me. Big thighs, big butt guy here. I understand the struggles. That was kind of the, the body image. I was like, wow, like I'm pretty chubby. Like even mm. my friends that played on the offensive line with me were different build, you could say. They're more muscular, built out. I just remember going and looking at pictures and I was like, man, I, I want to look differently than I do now. Like I'll go back on my Instagram and see pictures that I posted and I was like, ah, I look good for the weight I was at or I, I thought I looked okay at the time decent but i i would remember going on and like trying on a pair of pants i was like or buying something online you know i'd buy like a size medium or a large and i'd be like damn i need an xl in these yeah and like you know going and trying on clothes was never fun for me so body image wise like i wouldn't want to take my shirt off at the pool just stuff like that when i really started to become cognizant of it i did not enjoy those things and now it's become a complete 180 and i love going and shopping for new clothes and stuff and i'll take my shirt off at the pool but yeah junior year was not great and junior senior year was kind of when i realized huh something needs to change and uh, i got to put some work in and and get it done and just kind of take a complete 180 on my health and it was great for me and then the body you know body image wise like i said just started to realize like man i've got some some massive love handles on me like not that it's a horrible thing but like i don't i just don't love the way i look and it wasn't healthy i knew it wasn't healthy from not only a physical perspective like i, I don't want to be that weight my entire life and then also from a mental health thing as i guess that's the best way to put it from a mental health perspective is probably the way you want to hear it that's when it started to take the toll. I was like, ah, man, I want to look better. Like, want to fit into clothes. Don't want to be gassed after just running for like five minutes. At one point, you decided to get brave your weight loss journey. And you said to your friends you could get down to 205 pounds by Christmas. I think this was in your junior year or senior year. Is that right? Yeah, that was junior yeah. year of college. Okay, junior year of college. So your friends didn't believe you. And before you know it, they had put a combined total of 400 pounds in a bet between them against you. So I've got a couple questions here. First of all, did it hurt you knowing that they put this much amount of money against you to fail or going a bit deeper? Was it just a way of them to motivate you even more? First of all, I think they thought they were going to make money, which, <laughs> which was good for them. I mean, I'm always confident in myself and I think that's a good thing to be. But I, I definitely thought they thought they were going to make money and I thought they, they have a chance to make some money here. But it's also... They wanted to motivate me. We were all sitting around drunk one night. I came back from school and they had a, a scale out just uh, randomly in the living room. And they were like, what do you weigh right now? What do you weigh? I was like, I don't know. I'll hop on there. And I think I weighed in at like 237, 241, something like that. So I'd obviously gained some of the weight back, almost all of the weight back since, uh, you know, fluctuating from college and, and you know, being in an unhealthy food-wise environment, just eating whatever I can, you know, having access to all these different options. 
But yeah, they thought they were going to make money, but they also wanted to motivate me and see me do it. So I weighed in and I said, just out of the blue, I was like, I could be 205 by Christmas. And I think someone shouted free money, free <laughs> mo as in like, that's, that's an automatic guaranteed win. And we ended up putting $400 on it. I think my buddy Patrick put 100 My buddy Cooper put 100 And my brother bet against me. He was hanging out with us that night. He bet 200 bucks against me. So at the end of the day, probably a little bit of both. But, you know, it doesn't matter when we look back on it because I won. I got down to 205 by Christmas. That was a tough ask, but it worked. And definitely some motivation in there. Definitely they thought they were going to make some cash. Mm. There was one quite sad moment actually within this where you said to me off air, you'd go to bed starving on a lot of nights and yeah. to satiate it, you ate raw pasta to try and at least kind of fulfill some sort of desire for hunger. Was that the, the lowest moment for you on this journey or not? Yeah, I think so. I think that was probably as low as it got. So I remember I just had a routine. I would get up, I would make an omelet every single morning which was pretty tasty. And then for lunch, I'd have a pack of not ramen noodles, but something pretty similar. It was like a pre-made noodle pack, which probably wasn't the healthiest thing to be eating, but it was like 200 something calories. So I was counting my calories pretty aggressively at the time. Something I still don't do super pinpointed to this day, but I, I try and make sure I'm aware of what I'm eating, especially because I'm trying to build muscle now and, and gain some weight. And then after lunch, I'd maybe have a little snack. And then dinner every single night, Fred, was pan-seared chicken. I'd cut up chicken into little cutlets, and I'd have a salad and mix it all together, and that'd be good. And I did that for probably almost every day. I'd say 90% of the days that junior year leading up to Christmas, is that's what I was eating. And then, of course, you know, sometimes I would still be hungry. I have no idea how many calories I was eating. If I could go back, I would have done it differently because that was not enough food. But I just wasn't aware of it at the time. I thought that was healthy. And then I'd go to bed and sometimes I'd just sit there starving and I would just go grab a piece of bow tie pasta, like maybe five pieces of bow tie pasta and just sit there, raw pasta, put it in my mouth just to kind of like try and satiate myself. Be like, all right, like you'll be fine and just chew on that before bed. Then I'd pass out and wake up and eat an omelet the next morning, and I was good to go. But yeah, I'd say that's probably as low as it got. And looking back, that was not very healthy of me, and I would have done it differently, but that was a low point. The other part of your journey you wanted to talk about, Phil, is your life mantra and your positive outlook on life. So can you tell me more about that, and how do you use it to maintain or even improve your mental health? I always try and be positive is uh, my number one thing. You don't have to be positive about every single thing, but I think it's best to look at life with a glass half full kind of view. I think that really helps me mentally, just uh, always focusing or trying to always focus on the good things, but also take note of there are negatives. There are bad things that happen and you've got to realize that as well. But everything that I can and I try and control, I've got to look at it with a, with a good viewpoint. That helps me personally, just being positive and trying to uplift people around me, keep them positive, keep, mm. keep people happy, do these things. If everyone around you is feeling good and is, is in a good spot, which not everyone's not always going to be, but if I can try and keep my friends positive and happy, it makes me happy. And it, you know, that's one of my things. Them being in a happy space helps my mental health as well. Because if they're happy, 90% of the time, I'm happy as well. Mm. And that's what matters to me. You know, it's like, I kind of take what comes. Water off a duck's back, control what I can control is a huge thing for me. Everything else that happens to me that's out of my control, I can get upset or down about it, but I can't control these things, these external factors. If something bad happens and, and there's nothing I can do about it, well, it's okay to be upset, but I'm not trying to let that ruin my whole day. If I can control something and something bad happens, and yeah, I might be a little bit more upset, like, oh, I could have done better here. I could have said different words. I could have done something a different way. And then I've got only myself to blame. But yeah, if, if I can control what I can control and something external happens to me, that's fine. I'm still going to maintain a positive attitude where I can and just control what I can control. And that's mm. all. That's pretty much my whole mantra is be positive and control what you can control. Yeah. There's sometimes a danger here, Phil, when it comes to positivity in the mental health conversation, that sometimes it constrains a toxic positivity. And by this, I mean that when people might have mental illness or are in serious distress, someone might say to them, just be positive, or they'll tell them in a sort of positive way, you shouldn't be depressed, look what you've got going on for you, look what you've got that's positive for you. And sometimes I can feel that like that might be coming from a good place, but it's quite condescending and, and could at worst be quite hurtful mm. and stigmatizing. Do you recognize the dangers of that? Absolutely. And that's something 
I've probably, I would say I've definitely done that in the past and made that mistake. That could stem from my outlook, my mantra, and the things that I've done and the things that I've said. But there's a time and a place for everything. And, you know, you shouldn't, if someone's struggling, I wouldn't want to say these things to them. Everyone has their own things that they're going through mental health wise. And you can't just, like you said, you can't just say, oh, look at all these great things in your life. Like people are struggling on a, a deeper level. And you might not know that. And sometimes I'm sure my, attitude and you know saying this to people and i've definitely done it in the past and it's not a great thing but you've learned but that's you the can, most important thing mate yeah i say i've come a long way and i need to be still need to be more aware about it and do better at this because you know people struggle every day and it's not just there's no simple quick fix you can't just say be happy look at all these cool things you have all the stuff that's going great in your life like you can't just say be positive be happy because i do think that can get toxic and it can't be bad it's sitting down with people, understanding, talking to them on a deeper level. And, you know, there's no Band-Aid that just covers all this up. Like, be positive it could just be seen by some people as a Band-Aid, a, a one way to fix everything, but it's not. And you've got to be careful when you're telling people to just be positive, look at all these good things, that there's deeper things. There's underlying issues that probably address something or need to be addressed. And saying being positive is going to hurt more than it's going to help anything. Let's reflect now on your journey before we move on, Phil. So what has it taught you about yourself? And if you could go back and speak to that Phil who was maybe struggling with his weight or maybe just been told that he was going to get moved into the uh, offensive line and not be a cornerback anymore and his dreams of cornerbacking ruined or maybe <laughs> feeling embarrassed to take his shirt off in public around the pool or on the beach, what would you say to him knowing what you do now? Oh, man, what would I say to myself? I think I'd say, and this is going to sound pretty cliche, just be consistent and trust the process. If you really want something, you've got to work hard for it. And I worked hard, really hard to get to where I am now, not to try and brag or anything along those lines. But I'd go back and I'd say, you know, if you if you really want this, you got to stick with it. And you've got to understand that good things take time. Good things will come with time if you put in the time and effort and you work hard enough. And I think I'd say, what I would tell myself is to keep working hard and understand that things might not be great right now, but if you put in the time and effort and work and you could just see where you're going to be in a couple short years, you're going to be very happy. So don't give up and stick with it. And there's going to be highs and lows on this journey. Real deep lows, eating pasta late night. Raw pasta. <laughs> Raw pasta late night. But at the end of the day, if you're committed and you really want this, and I, I really did, you're going to find your way and everything's going to be all right. I'm very happy how I came out on this side of the journey and I've still got a long journey to go. But there's just so many things that I've learned along the way and that I picked up that I probably wouldn't even know about if I wasn't in that situation. I've learned so much about health and fitness and I'm still learning every single day. And I've gained so much knowledge from this process and I've come out a better person because of it. We've come to the best and my favorite part of this podcast episode, oh, yeah. Phil, and it's a little chat about our friendship. So it's thanks to my best mate, James, and episode 50 guest of the pod that we're talking now, and we became friends. So I can't actually remember, you know, the first time that I ever met you. It was probably at James's parents' house in Wanstead, but I just remember how just stereotypically like classical American you were, you know, you're enthusiastic, you're outgoing, you got to know everyone really quickly. You were just chucking out one-liners every few moments. They were just, <laughs> just great, memorable quotes. Just tell me about your first experience of coming to England, maybe your first impressions of me and the other boys. First experience of coming to England. So I'll give a little background for everyone listening now. I got an internship. I think I'd been to England once before and loved it. And then I got an internship opportunity over there for two months in the summer of 2017 was yep. my first one. That's, yep. that's when we first met for the first time. and. I loved everything about England. I was living at the Barbican. I was walking to work every day. It was great. The one thing that got a little unsettling was not knowing a ton of people, going back to the flat every night and just being like, man, I don't, you know, I need people to hang out with, blah, blah, blah. So I would just either do that, go to the pub for a little bit, hang out, try and meet people. I loved everything about it. And then meeting you guys. So I remember 
one of the first things I said to James as soon as I got there, I got my flat. I was like, is there no air conditioning here? <laughs> and he was like, what are you talking about? I was like, I'm looking for like the AC control. My flat is super hot. You know, I'm jet lagged. I had like four pints at the pub. The first thing I did was go to the pub and start drinking, of course. <laughs> Put my bags away, got some drinks. It was great. And then I got back and realized there's no AC. And James was like, oh, yeah, dude, we don't really do air conditioning over here. And I was like, that's crazy. <laughs> I don't like that at all. But I, I lived with it rolling with the punches once again and i just remember being shell-shocked by that and james was like i was like i need someone to hang out with so i think i hit james up and we went he's like oh yeah we can go buy you a fan if your place is too hot never ended up buying the fan just hung out and then i think you know somewhere along the way got introduced to you and the rest of the guys and i remember one of the first things i thought was man this is such a stereotypical english group i love it this is awesome <laughs> i can't wait to be immersed into this just like the funny stuff that y'all would say, just being around the accent all day and like trying to do the accent myself. Like it was, it was You're pretty funny. You're doing the stereotypical accent that every American thinks we talk like. It's the, it's like the one they do on the Simpsons. Yeah, cool, blimey. We all sound like this, we do. Blimey, mate. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. That might be a little Australian. I don't even know in there. But yeah, also, I, also I American remember... impressions of English end up going a little bit Australian too. So you're not far yeah. off there. No, I'm I'm pretty. I'd say I'm pretty good with it of doing the stereotypical you're getting better. English accent you're getting from better. American. Yeah. yeah, and then I, you know, I started to pick up on some slang like in it and stuff like that. You so. said to me, "Bruv," the other day. I was like, "Wow, you really bruv. are English." <laughs> See, here's the thing. I say "bruv" to my American friends now. I'm just like, what's Have up, they picked bro? it up? Like, Have they picked yeah, it up? Yeah, yeah, Every, yeah. Oh. Everyone's picked it up. So I'm just taken from different cultures, absorbing different words, all that fun stuff. I remember the first time, like, again, I don't specifically remember when we first met, but I just remember being like, man, James has a great group of friends around him and just having fun, going to the pub all the time. And just everyone was, was so much fun. Y'all were so nice, so accepting to me to let me in and, uh, you know, you don't even know if you're ever going to see me again. I'm just the random American who's here for one summer, but just being introduced to that group, y'all have such a good group of guys over there, a group of gals as well. And just having, having so much fun that summer, y'all are so welcoming and just drinking Asahi's and Peroni's and yeah. at the George and all that fun stuff. Yeah, Can't it beat was, it. it. That's, was the, that's um, one of my fondest memories. It was the world cup that year for the listeners who no, don't know. Next was it in the, the year after? The, the next year was the World Cup. Oh, okay. That's, it was 2018. Complete... See, we've got it on my yeah, notes, 2018 yeah, yeah. World Cup, but I thought I'd got it wrong. So I was actually right. Okay. What I do remember when I saw you, Phil, I, I don't think this was the first time, but it was definitely kind of one of the second or third times. We were at James's house. We were watching an England game. And I think you had a Rashford shirt on. Yeah, You had a shirt with Rashford, Rashford on the England back. Shirt. Yeah. Yes. And me, me and all the boys were like, oh, we still like stereotypical English. Like, I don't know if we're going to do well. Like, we, we had the kind of, you know, the hope, but we didn't think we'd actually do anything. You, got, you were like... Guys, no, England, they could do well. I, I feel it in my bones. I, I was like, I said <laughs> I was like no, I feel you're chatting rubbish. I was a believer from day one. Because here's the thing. I never experienced, because I got into soccer football later. Obviously, y'all been growing up with it your whole lives. And y'all had seen, now I know how bad England has done in the past with good <laughs> players. And I was like, no, dude, like, this team's sick. Like, I know all these guys off FIFA. Like, this team's going to run it back. Like, it's coming home. And y'all were like, no chance. And I just remember being so positive about England, wearing that Rashford shirt like everywhere that summer because I was living with James that second summer. And man, those those are some of my favorite memories, watching the World Cup with y'all, just going around to different houses, different pubs, like watching England play. I remember the first day rolling up and watching. I came in, I was jet lagged as could be once again. I was laying on the couch downstairs in James's living room and Iran is playing Russia in the first game of the <laughs> World Cup. And I think I think Dan showed up and Dan was like, oh, good. To, good to see you, mate. Like, how, how you been? I was like, I don't remember this guy, but he's cool. He's being real nice. Like and then, of course, like some some memories came back from from Dan and stuff the year before. But yeah, man, that summer was outrageous. Being so positive about England, y'all were like, oh, no, they're not going to do well. And I was like, no, no, watch this. Like we're running it back. England's big time. And I now am, you know, partial to England. Big England soccer fans still love the U.S. men's national team as well. But that summer was awesome and can't say enough good things about that group and just just the fun times we had that summer. You were lucky in a sense, Phil, because not only did you get to stay in one of the nicest parts of London, you also were able to go out clubbing and do all these amazing things with us back then. So me, you and big friend of the pod, Dan Agnew, we actually went to a drum and bass night in Bethnal Green. 
just before yes. the semi-final of the World Cup. And it's Coming Home was played by actually the DJs on that night too, midway through. How much fun was that for you just to kind of be in that sort of UK clubbing experience as well? That was awesome because that's something I'd never experienced before. You know, I'm all about trying new things and, and just having fun. And you were like, we're going to get tickets. We're going to go out. It's going to be real fun. And I think we stayed out so late that night, man. You stayed longer than me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was I was having the time of my life. The U- UK clubs are are built different, you could say. They're, they're a lot of fun. Had an absolute blast and just a whole new experience. And I would go back and do that night any night of the week, man. That was that was so much fun. I, I can't, was that on a Thursday? I think I had no, work it was the a next weekend. day, too. It was a weekend. It was a weekend. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah. That was incredible. Incredible yeah. experience. On another occasion... You went to the venue next door. So we went to the Pickle Factory for that drum and bass night. We went to a place called Oval Space, which was next door to it. And you saw one of the biggest UK rap legends to ever grace the streets, Giggs, with us, which not many Americans can say they have. So me seeing you rapping Giggs lyrics was just stupendous for me. It was so, I think we were all just (laughs) laughing, just like with you, just how great it was. Did that open your eyes as to how good the UK scene actually is? The only gigs lyrics I knew were from his like two Drake features because I'm not I'm not even a huge Drake fan, but I I was like, oh, this guy's pretty cool. I still don't listen to much. I don't listen to much rap at all. Sorry, that's probably an over exaggeration. I still listen to rap music. Like if Kanye West dropped Kanye West dropped his album, I listen. Drake dropped an album, I listen. But I'm not really out there expanding. But I do have a greater appreciation now than I did before because I remember when I showed up, I was like. This isn't real rap. This UK stuff, like, what is this? And then after going to that night, like having a mosh pit there, it's, that was crazy. I was like, okay, these guys actually, you know, they've got some good music. Like they're having fun. We're out there having a blast. Definitely more appreciative of it. I won't say that I still listen to it all the time. Like I've I've had like Skepta or someone pop up, mm-hmm. and I know you think that's so mainstream, and it, it is. It but is I'm for like, Americans. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it it is. So I was I, I'll I'll occasionally have the Skepta song on, or maybe if I'm at the gym, throw a little gigs in there. Cause I'm like, Oh, I've seen that guy. Am I actively seeking out UK rap? No, but I'm not actively seeking out any kind of rap right now either. If it comes, I'll listen to it. If it comes on the top 40 hits, they might be on my playlist. Well, Phil, I only listen really to UK drill and drill was started in America by, as we know, chief Keith really. I mean, there's debate yes. about that, but largely chief Keith. And I would say yes. UK drill is far superior to us now. Well, you're wrong. But <laughs> I again, I haven't listened to US or UK drill since probably that gigs concert. Not seriously. <laughs> and gigs ain't drill. So just just before there, we get there, that. there we go. I don't even know. I don't even know. I'm getting my categories all mixed up. I do. Uh, Pop I Smoke do was produced remember. by UK drill producer, by the way. If you want context, I heard he went to London, and I do like Pop Smoke a lot. That's one of the you know rest rest in, rest rest in, in peace. Yeah, yeah. Woo Wednesday coming up every Wednesday. Pop Smoke's awesome, but yeah. I like y'all's music. It's just not as good as ours. I'll probably right, we'll, we'll agree to disagree. We'll agree to disagree. Yeah, yeah, we can agree to disagree. <laughs> that same year, mate, me and you also went to Lovebox Festival. And the only reason I went yes. was because you gave me a last minute ticket. So we pre-drank at James's house whilst James wasn't even there. And yeah, we saw we Childish Gambino. We saw Childish Gambino, mate. So tell me about your experience of that day and you know, if you felt comfortable because it was so traumatic and negative. The journey home which I only remembered, it's a repressed memory for me when we spoke of that. Well, I went to Lovebox the year before as well, so I knew I had to go back. And Childish Gambino is one of my favorite artists of all time. I saw Childish Gambino at Lovebox, and then I saw him two months later back in Atlanta, which was absolutely stupendous, for lack of better words. So I saw Frank Ocean the first year, was the big headliner with my buddy. My buddy Jonathan came over because he was doing a study abroad in France. Went and saw Frank Ocean, dapped him up after the concert. That had to be said because Frank Ocean is very cool. And then saw Childish Gambino the next year, and that was absolutely outstanding as well. I remember downing some Asahis at James's place and then taking probably the longest train ride I've taken in England, besides, you know, getting on like a big train, go up to Manchester or uh, Scotland, that train ride took forever. And the way back was even worse. But man, that day was so much fun just meeting up with everybody. And I remember, I think I was trying to get James to go with me because I'd bought the two tickets like early. And then he was like, oh, I can't make it. I was like, Fred, come on, man. You were like, oh, like, I don't want to, I don't want to go. Like these tickets are expensive. I was like, no, no, just have the ticket. I don't care. Like, I'm not going to sell it. Like, come on. I need someone to go with me. I, I would get lost on that train system. If yeah. it weren't, for oh, no, 100%. I wouldn't know what I was doing. 
And I just remember like walking up, like even on the train, seeing all these people wearing like these outlandish like costumes and clothing and stuff. And we were just sitting there having a good time and then getting to the festival, drinking all day. Just, man, that was so much fun. And then the train ride back. I mean, we had to walk started... for a long time first, by the way. That was uh, one of the most traumatic walks I've ever done. That was brutal. We didn't want to get on the train station that was super close. So we walked probably... I don't know, a God couple of miles, yeah. couple a couple miles, miles that yeah. evening to get to another train station. That was awful. Got on the train. And then all I remember from that train ride back, other than being exhausted, was you just did probably a hundred different <laughs> impersonations <laughs> and accents. And I was like, I think I, I wanted to hear like a few. And then you just kept going. I was like, oh, Fred, what are you doing? And then other people on the train started laughing. And I was like, no, 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 let's kill this off. Let's kill this off. My ears, I can't do it right now. And yeah, I, you just, I think probably half the train ride back and mind you, this is probably an hour train ride with a few switches. You just went after the accents the whole time, the impersonations, the whole bit. It was, it was hey, crazy. I was that drunk. I had no internal filter to stop myself no. from doing them. So people can, bl- people can blame themselves for getting me started and then letting me go off. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Next time, anyone, if you're doing anything with Fred and he's drunk, don't even turn the switch because it's it's on don't, and it's off. No, and if don't. it's on, it stays. It, it stays, stays on. It stays, stays on. The, the, it stays on, the, then the switch gets broke and, it's, and it just stays yeah. permanently on. I think I just asked you guys, like, can you just do your, like, Jose Mourinho impression? <laughs> and you were like, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and by the way, here's, here's such and such, and here's Steven Gerrard, and here's all these other people. And I was like, no, Fred, just Mourinho. <laughs> <laughs> That, yeah, that definitely, definitely wild. don't start me off when I'm that level of drunk because it just won't ever end. You came to visit us again, mate, the year after, yes. which was March 2019. And you surprised all of us actually as well, which was really nice. We were at um previous Just Checking In podcast, Alex Bartley's birthday. So you turned up unannounced. I didn't know you were coming. I think I don't think many of the boys knew you were coming. And I just told James. You told you just told James. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when, yeah. when you turned up, obviously it was great to see him. We had a good chat. And... It was actually really nice for me because we spoke a lot about mental health then and your mental yes. health specifically. Was that a big, it might have seemed like a small thing, but did that, was that a quite a big moment for you? And did it feel like a crystallization or maybe the start of getting us to where we are today with this podcast? Hmm. I don't want to disappoint you with my answer, but I remember You can disappoint, very, it's fine. Okay, I just remember being super hammered and talking about it. And I was <laughs> like, that was a really good chat. Like, you know, when you have those drunk chats and you're just like, that was a great conversation. That's what that was. I definitely started to think a little bit more in depth about it, but I didn't come away with it with like anything crazy. I knew you had the podcast going. I was like, man, that's awesome. Just wanted to chat with you about that. I wouldn't say it like, again, don't want to disappoint you, like crystallized anything inside me or like made me feel a certain type of way. I just came away with that. Like, man, that's a great chat. I love what Fred's doing. Like all these things, like it's, it's good. And then I didn't think much about it again until you kind of brought it back up and you were like, mate you got to get on the pot and then i was like okay that's that's when i really started to think about it and i was like i don't i don't know if i have anything to talk about and then we kind of did our chat and went from there and that was that was great for me too and i mean now we're here but regarding that night freddie it was two weeks prior i had no plans for spring break and i was like i gotta do something so i text james and i said hey like what are you doing this such and such week? And he was like, oh like we got bartlett's like birthday party that night like i was like can i come stay He's like, yeah, let me ask. Let me ask my parents. Ask his parents, who are awesome, by the way. Big shout out. And then um, five minutes later, he's like, yeah, yeah, they said it's fine. I was like, okay, cool. And I bought my plane ticket and I said, James, don't tell anyone that I'm coming because I'm going to surprise the boys. And then came over. And man, not only was that night great, and that's the same place we watched the World Cup. We watched we Ronaldo did. score yeah, three exactly. against Spain. That's the same spot. So I was just having a blast, man. And to be able to surprise y'all was so much fun we've come to our final topic of conversation phil and it's one i try and have with all of my special guests which is a general natter and chat about our mental health so firstly mate how is your mental health at the moment i think i'm in a really good spot right now you know as always there's some ups and downs you know and i've used this term i probably killed this term rolling with the punches and water off a duck's back at this point so there have been some ups and downs but i'd say overall my mental health is, is really good right now. Got a lot of people, a lot of great friends to credit that too. You're on that list. And I wouldn't be where I am without them. And, you know, the work that I've put in and tried to better myself as a person too. A little humble brag there, whatever. But mm-hmm. I think I'm in a really good spot. You know, one of the best spots I've been in. And 
if I could, this is, this is where I'd love to stay forever in this, in this spot mentally, but as you know, things change and stuff happens, but yeah, right now I'm in a really good spot. How are you? I'm good, mate. Yeah, I'm good. Actually. I obviously there's a lot of life's ups and downs. I'm still doing therapy at the moment. I'm hoping to finish that off pretty soon, but generally I would say I'm okay. Yeah. Which is good. Been worse, but been better. What age were you, Phil, when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realized the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health? I'd say I probably have been learning about my mental health in increments and, you know, it didn't all just come at once and I Mm -hmm. wasn't like, oh, I'm like aware of my, my mental health all of a sudden. I'd say, you know the people around me have played a big role, like even socially mental health being more talked about has played a big role. Like, you know, a couple of years ago, I would think, oh, there's different things going on in my head, like thoughts flying around mental health. But I I couldn't really attribute it to anything, but I was kind of being aware of it. But now that it's become such a topic that people are actually speaking about and it's become, you know, public and it's good to talk about these things. And I wouldn't say as stigmatized as they used to be. I've definitely come to be much more aware of mental health as a whole i wouldn't say i'm fully all-knowing or understanding by any means of it no one is yeah but i'd say the last couple years have probably been the biggest in my mental health development so not really understanding you know through high school and college as much and then just the last couple years especially during the pandemic it's something like i kind of looked into because you know everyone was going through stuff during the pandemic and COVID. And I know you haven't really touched on that yet, but that's, that's kind of when I more switched on to that side and, you know, it's had, it's had a good effect on me, but I wouldn't say there's a specific date or time that I really started to zone in on it. I would just say it's, it's come in increments. Yeah, sure. That's fine. Can you tell me about the first conversation you had with someone about your mental health, Phil? So who is it with? What did you say? And What impact did it have? Did it feel like a big burden or weight had been lifted off you? Did it feel like a part of you had changed? Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and fairly normal to do? (sighs) The first conversation I had about mental health, off the top of my head, I don't know Mm. what the first, I just know, you know, it's come up. I can think about various times, like you and I chatted with it briefly. And then I can think of other people that I've, I've kind of spoken with about it. You know, it's even come up with just chatting around with some of my friends. I could, I I really couldn't tell you the first time. I just know I've had these conversations. Like I look back and just, you know, memories flowing through my head right now, but I can't really pinpoint a first time Mm -hmm. that I chatted with anyone about it. But, you know, I just think back and just chatting with friends and maybe we weren't even on the subject of mental health. We didn't really know we were talking about mental health at the time. Like that's not what the conversation was about, but that's kind of, what it rolled into. And, you know, I didn't come away from that conversation thinking we were talking about mental health. We were probably just talking, speaking about things that needed to be spoken about, like feelings we were having and things along those lines. One of the best things was hearing my friend was like, oh yeah, I'm feeling that way too. Like I'm having these things go on. Like I'm, I'm having these issues or like, this is what I've done to like remedy this problem or to feel a certain way. And just being able to talk about it was phenomenal. What tools and methods do you use in your own life to improve your mental health feel or help you feel better? Which ones have you found that have worked for you? Maybe which ones that you tried but haven't? So one of the one of the big issues that I've stumbled across mental health wise is I feel and we haven't really touched on it here, but constantly being switched on to work and constantly thinking about it and being stressed and not just about work. Like I get I get stressed about other things as well. So that's a trigger. for Um, Yeah, stress is stress is definitely definitely a trigger for me. And one of the things I try and do, like, you know, it started with my work life is just shut it down. So I used to work like on the weekends, just start working on like Sunday night. You know, work is for working. Like I can work on these things Monday morning. They don't have to be done Sunday night. You know, I'll still get on and and make a plan, but stress about that, constantly thinking about that work. Some of the tools I've used against that is just like forcing myself to shut the laptop down or even in other facets of life, like stopping myself and making myself like, okay, these things don't need to be done now. You need to take your mind off these things because if you let it, your mind will run away. I think there's some nights I stay up all night thinking about work and I'm like, I'm not on the clock right now. I don't need to be thinking about this. Like, And I just get stressed out. I get a little anxious about it. It's not a fun spot to be in. So other than just shutting it down, like another one of the tools I use, I try and just calm myself, meditate a little bit. My wonderful girlfriend has the Calm app, which has been pretty good. I don't use it much. She uses it all the time. She absolutely loves it. And then just being positive and probably doesn't sound good, but just stopping trying not to think about these things. I don't know if that's a tool or more of a coping mechanism in a way, 
but just trying to focus my mind on other things, like thinking about other things I've got going on right now. Like I'm, I'm working on my car. I love working on my car. So anytime if I'm going to bed and one of these anxious thoughts creeps in, I just try and think, oh, what would I need to do to my car? Or I try and think about just better things. So I don't know if I have specific tools, but I have mechanisms that I use to try and refocus and, and help myself out. If that makes sense, I know that was a long-winded answer, probably more than you were gunning for, but that's that's what I've got. I don't I don't have specific tools. Okay, what's the best book or mental health bible you've read for your mental health? Oh, hmm, interesting. I don't really have. I'd like to say I read more than I do, but I don't read that much. I guess reading as a whole is more of an escape for me. So where I don't really think about anything else, I focus on focus on the book. You know, it's just a good time to relax my mind. I guess I'll be completely honest with you, Fred. I haven't really read any mental health books, but one book that I have been reading and I need to pick back up is uh, History of the Roman Empire or the Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And just reading that is more of a mechanism just to take my mind off of things. So I don't I don't specifically seek out any mental health related books. But just reading as a whole has definitely helped just calm myself down and take my mind away. It's like escaping, like I'm sure a ton of people know that read way more than I do. It's like escaping to another world. And as a final question, Phil, and this is a broad one, so you can answer it however which way you want to. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want to do it? Yeah, I want everyone and my friends to know that I'm open and available and more than happy to talk about these things. And I want to reach out to them and chat about it if they feel compelled. And I just want to be there and let these friends know, everyone know that I want to have these conversations if they feel comfortable doing so. And it'd be really good for everyone. So just staying open and available is is really important for me to be that way and letting people know that they can be comfortable reaching out to me and speaking about these issues. The man, the myth, the legend, Phil Addison. Thank you so much for coming on the Just Checking In podcast. Fred, thanks so much for having me, man. Well, that's it for this episode of the Just Checking In podcast. I want to say a big thanks to my main man, Phil, for coming on and checking in with me. I will chuck the GDM social media links in the show notes of this episode. For me, it's the best Premier League football podcast on the net you can find that you've probably never heard of. But hopefully they'll be heard of soon. As always, I will sign us off by saying thank you to all the vendors who've tuned into this episode. If you've liked what you've heard, give it a share on social media. Tell your friends, tell your work colleagues about it, tell your family. Spread the good news about Vent and the podcast. If you want to support us, you can drop us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. If you want to support us even further, you can visit our Patreon and donate to our Patreon, which is at www.patreon.com slash venthelpuk. If you don't want to do that and you want to make a one-off donation, you can do that by visiting our GoFundMe. Our GoFundMe is on all of our channels and in our link tree. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay to vent.